Hi, welcome to the Creative Review podcast. I'm Eliza Williams and I'm here today with Patrick Burgoyne. Hello. And Saloni Gardgill. Hi. We're here to talk about some of the topics and issues that we've been talking about and thinking about at CR this week. And uh, this time round, we're going to talk about comedy and advertising and where it's gone. And the mystery of the Instagram star, Little Michaela. And finally, we're going to discuss the London Transport Museum's depot, which is out in Acton, which I visited this week. But to kick things off, we're going to start off with talking about comedy in ads, which is prompted by the latest issue of Creative Review, which has all been about humour. And it features two articles looking specifically at comedy and advertising, uh, which are by David Colbush at Droga5 and Naresh Ramchandani at Pentagram, who both have sort of different points of view on this subject. Uh, The initial subject was actually prompted really by a lot of conversations in the office, though, about uh, the the lack of, of comedy and advertising today. And a lot of moaning on my part about the uh, the sort of tendency of ads to be very about sort of goodness and worthiness and serious topics these days, uh, which has led to some very good advertising and some very strong, often award-winning work, uh, but has also taken a bit of the fun out of advertising that I remember certainly associating with ads when I was younger and even sort of I don't know, like last 10 years ago, you saw a lot more kind of entertainment and comedy coming through. So these articles look a little bit at why that doesn't exist so much. And um, maybe, Patrick, you could talk through a little some of the points that Naresh and David say. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say that there are still funny ads being made. But as as Eliza was saying, it, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's the thing that the industry wants to celebrate or to be known for. And I started writing about the advertising world in the 90s. And I don't want this to sound like a, oh, it was all better in my day kind of thing. But back in those days, there, there were agencies that were known for comedy. So things like Cliff Freeman in the States, known as the comedy agency. If you wanted to write comedy, you'd go and work for that agency, consistently produce fantastic stuff. That seems to have gone out of the window. Um, but also just the, the, the general use of comedy in advertising seems to have changed. And Naresh's piece looked at it more from a brand perspective and he focused on this idea of aspiration, that that became a very seductive thing for brands, for businesses and therefore for agencies. There's a great line in his piece where he talks about um, that a lot of comedy uh, relied on, you know, little kind of triumphs over the everyday or situations where people were not having a great time of it. Things like the Hamlet campaign, for example, which were all about, you know, frustrations of everyday life and and he he wrote that instead of being stuck in a life people wanted a better life and this was great for brands because if you're only selling a lager then you can only charge for lager if you're selling a dream you can charge anything you like and so this idea of aspiration taking hold was very very powerful and it led to brands perhaps moving away from humor from laughing at themselves from laughing at life yeah and I guess that would lead, perhaps, especially in today's times where there's a lot of political awareness, a lot of political discussion, it could easily lead to where we are now, where brands are sort of taking this very sort of serious, almost po-faced stance about issues a lot yeah. of the time. Yeah, and David's piece really picks up on that. And um, he also mentions a few other reasons why we've got to where we are today. And one of them is the fact that many, many more campaigns now have to work internationally. So... Humour, as we all know, doesn't necessarily translate that well. Or the kinds of humour that does translate well is is much more basic 
more knockabout, not the kind of humour that perhaps British advertising became known for in the 70s and 80s, which was maybe more subtle, maybe more based on wordplay, maybe more idiosyncratically British. So that kind of stuff doesn't really translate so well on a worldwide stage. Yeah, there was a, we, I was part of the jury for the Epica Awards, which are, are judged all by journalists. And there's a section actually in the Epica Awards of funniest ads of the year, which was by far the most uh, fun category to judge. Um, but that very much came up in that because there was a national lottery ad starring James Blunt. I don't know if you remember this. It was actually probably almost over a year ago it came out. But it's very much James Blunt sort of mocking his image uh, and his song, um, You're Beautiful. And it's very, very funny. But it was noticeable that the people in the jury who were really kind of falling about with it were the obviously the English speakers because it was very much about sort of copy and, and the humour of words, really, rather than... And you obviously had to get him and you had to get the, the song being aggravating... And it's hard for all that stuff to translate globally if you yeah. if you want to make it work that way. Cultural references, by and large, are very difficult things to make work mm. across boundaries. So there's definitely that. I think there's also something about um, context. There was a period where advertising went through this whole um, obsession with shock tactics and really pushing things and... That came through very much in humour. There was sort of very, very edgy humour, but it tended to be for either brands or for campaigns which were very confined in terms of where they were seen. So you could run an ad that would just appear in a magazine for young people and it would work for that audience and they would understand it and they would accept something which was maybe more outrageous than a mainstream audience could accept. But of course, the danger now is that an ad like that wouldn't simply appear in that print magazine you'd photograph it and put it on twitter yeah and therefore people who had no relationship with the publication that it appears in no kind of connection with that audience would just come at this from a completely yeah. out of context situation and therefore um you know quite rightly maybe be upset by something because you don't have it within that framework so do you think that's made brands fearful then to sort of take a risk like that or? i would think so yeah because um it just exposes them that much more. Yeah. And we know that, you know, the nature of social media is there are millions of people just waiting to be outraged about something and will jump all over it. So naturally, I think people would be more more cautious in that in that scenario. Yeah. I've been trying to think of the ads I found really funny in recent times because it, it's interesting how you often go back to things like Hamlet, which, you know, really is a long time ago now. But I was thinking of... Uh, the ones that always stand out for me are um, the Skittles ads. Do you remember the Skittles ads? They were they sort of had a kind of dip for a while, but uh, but the ones with the bunny, I remember really laughing at that. And uh, and then Epic Split, the Volvo trucks, and actually even though they're funny, they're sort of there's a surrealness to those kind of ads. And you know, Drumming Gorilla, obviously again. I don't know if you'd laugh out loud at that, but you would certainly comment on it and share it and all that stuff. And. Uh, I think it's sort of interesting how it sort of did move away from one-liners into a sort of surreal thing, which maybe does work more globally, I suppose. Certainly Epic Split worked globally. Yeah, absolutely. Just that visual of... Yeah. But I mean, coming back to the point that you were making earlier about course-based advertising, and this is something which David talks about a lot in the piece, and I think this is very relevant, which is if you're in an advertising awards jury room and a, a campaign comes on which is claiming to solve world hunger... And everyone is amazed by it and gets behind it. And, and yeah, isn't this, this is the kind of thing we should be doing. And then the next ad is just a gag for beer. 
Yeah. Of course, you're going to think, well, how can I judge both of them on on the same level? One is inevitably going to feel somewhat trivial or lightweight next to this campaign that's promising to change people's lives. Yeah. And you know, there's the sim- a brilliant Saturday Night Live sketch. Do you, you see that where they basically mocked that very scenario, but from a client perspective? Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, you this the cynic in me understands or sus- suspects that agencies are there to try and win as many awards as they can. There's tremendous pressure on agencies and the people within them to win awards. And this also goes for clients increasingly. Now you hear lots of stories about new clients coming to agencies and saying, right, what are you going to do that's going to win me some awards? Because it's the way in which their career can be advanced. So it's natural that they will go with what they feel is the prevailing direction of stuff that wins awards. And stuff that doesn't seem to win awards, well, less of it will get made. So as long as there is this you know, shift towards cause-based advertising, doing good, that wins awards, irrespective of its actual impact in the world, I have to say. Well, I know that's another point, is how much are these things actually reaching the wider world? Yeah, yeah. That's and the, the wider world, world needs some laughs. <laughs> Come on, marketeers. Exactly. There's, there's another thing which I wonder as well, which is a kind of more general piece about the direction that comedy is going, and particularly TV comedy, which is... You know, there's a cliche now about modern comedies being comedies that actually aren't funny or have no mm, jokes. There's them. a bit of tragedy there often, isn't there? Yeah, and when you see, you know, the kinds of things that are getting commissioned and getting critically you know, lauded, whether it's Catastrophe or whether it's Fleabag or or any number of um, Netflix shows, um, it's a different type of TV comedy. It's moving, certainly moved away from sketch-based comedy or catchphrase-based comedy. So I wonder whether some of that is more difficult to translate into advertising and therefore going back to more kind of traditional type comedy doesn't feel like it reflects the culture so well. So maybe it could feel a little bit old-fashioned and maybe that's why it doesn't get made. I just wonder whether there's some sort of some some shifts in the sort of more general kind of comedy universe which make it more difficult to make humorous ads. Yeah, I think very possibly... Oh, very interesting. I think we're going to now move on and bring Saloni in uh, and talk about uh, little Michaela, who you may or may not have heard of. I have to be honest and say that I hadn't heard of her until this week when uh, an article was written for our website by Florence Evans, who's a planner at Iris, who pointed out this uh, this new Instagram influencer, little Michaela, who uh, has garnered about a million followers. Is that right, Saloni? Well, I'll... I'll give me the background. Yeah, I'll give you the background. Uh, so Michaela Souza, who goes by Little Michaela on Instagram, is an influencer who's appeared on the platform since f- since about I think 2016. So we're a little bit late to the party. I know, a little dear. bit late to the party. <laughs> uh, but she's young and she's beautiful. She's American. She's of Spanish and Brazilian descent, um, and she's touching on about a hundred thousand followers now. And as with most Instagram influencers, a little, little bit hard to tell exactly what compels people to follow her. I mean, she has a distinct personal style, uh, great taste in fashion, uh, posts a lot of pictures of herself eating really good-looking food in good-looking places and with good-looking people. Um, She also reveals stuff about herself, like we know she likes Beyonce and she likes Polaroid pictures. Um, She aligns herself to social causes, so she's definitely against gun violence since she supports the Black Lives Matter movement. And brands have started to notice her. So they've been partnering with, with her. And most recently, she partnered with Prada and did like an ad for them, which was on Instagram. 
um she's also we hear going to drop an album soon so that's in the making and there's a little spotify playlist that has been <laughs> so it's a little bit unclear what what exactly she does it it all sounds pretty bog standard um that sounds exactly like what an influencer does except she's computer generated okay and, and she uh, looks it right and uh, yeah i th- i think she looks it i think you can definitely tell that she is not a real human being but this is a part of the intrigue because if you read the comments people are really confused about this there are people that actually buy in to her persona and completely defend the idea that she is real and she's just someone that's great at makeup yeah uh, and there are other people that are absolutely against the idea and have taken it upon themselves to reveal this big conspiracy but it isn't really a conspiracy because she's not trying to say she's real there is no defense or I mean, is she? What is she saying? I mean, is do we know that she's she doesn't take by a stance? A she? We don't know anything. <laughs> we don't know anything. About we don't know creator. anything, and she doesn't really take a stance on this. She doesn't herself reveal anything, which is, I think, quite. So she doesn't comment when people say stuff about her not being no. real. No, okay. she responds to comments and she interacts and responds to DMs, but it's all very much about what she's doing or what work she's. It's, it's yeah. as if you'd be interacting with. a human being there i say and it is do you think this is interesting because brands are getting involved so there's so it reflects on the nature of instagram that it's actually it's not about authenticity and and real people it's about what you can present yeah. which obviously is something has been talked about with instagram and facebook and so on about this kind of manufacturing of your image and the creation of your perfect life kind of thing yeah, but you, but this is taking it to a new level you think it's taking it to a new level because she's a i mean she's a brand and ultimately all of us work like brands the minute we translate ourselves yeah. into when, <laughs> I, <laughs> when we translate ourselves into an online persona which we're crafting it right there is a yeah. selection of what we put online there's a sel- there's a curation there's filtering and she's just taken that or this I, i i say she see i've bought into this i've been following her now for an entire week and yeah. i i really hesitate to not refer to her as she i refer to her as she i i say you know i look at a photograph and then go oh that's what she's up to today yeah. so that's an interesting one that i'm fully aware and yet i'm buying into it yeah it's interesting because there's obviously there's been sort of literary versions of this in history and there's been art frauds and art fakes and I mean I guess part of the interest with Instagram is that it is so regularly updated so you don't you know when there's been a literary fraud it's been a book maybe that's written but with Instagram you can kind of actually invest in them over time maybe that's the difference with this channel over others I think it's definitely the investment and I think it's the it's the idea that it's the people that make this character because it's all in our reaction to them or it's all in our response to them. Yeah, so, so you're shaping it too. You're shaping it too and if 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 you react to something positively then that person does more of it and that's actually no different from a human influencer. Yeah. Because if you like them in doing certain things and you like them supporting a movement, they're likely to do more of it to get to get more support. And in a way that mechanism it's the mechanism isn't it and the mechanism's really similar. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of this. It got me thinking about and the article as well mentions that this isn't actually a new phenomenon as you've said yeah. it's it's even not a new phenomenon in the digital space i think because there's a really interesting documentary um on netflix called darknet which follows a series of different people doing different things on the internet and one of the things they discuss is this japanese game called love plus now love plus has existed for at least 5 years 
maybe maybe a little bit more and what this game is is that it allows japanese men exclusively men play it it allows you to um form re- a relationship with one of three women that are characters in this game so there are three they are called rinko nene and manaka and you get boyfriend points Okay. for how well you interact with one of these three women you enter this scenario where you're in a high school and you can form a relationship with one of them and f- interestingly almost everybody chooses to form a relationship with Rinko so she's the popular one and everyone forms their version of Rinko so your reaction to her shaping this character okay. and the game can go on for years and years and there are men that legitimately prefer this as a relationship because Well there was the Spike Jones film as well about the, the her that was also yeah. about us and yeah. I think yeah but what they prefer it because there's a it's less messy it's less messy <laughs> you know they're getting gratification so it's about that what are you getting out of this as a follower what are you getting out of the little, little Michaela you know well, what, I mean that's what I find interesting because I haven't because I only discovered it this week I haven't really been invested in it so much but there's a it makes me feel uncomfortable in a way in the way that I think a lot of stuff that you know is manufactured but it's it's sort of manipulating you a bit i think it does and you know and obviously all the stuff at the moment about social networks there's a lot of negative talk about what how much we're being sort of manipulated so in that context it feels a bit uncomfortable but yeah. but maybe it's more innocent than that I don't, know. i don't know we're gonna have to wait and see yeah i, I want to see do you think she'll be exposed or will it okay expose so this herself? is this is something that's really really interesting and it's so interesting that we're recording this podcast today because last night michaela was hacked okay and little michaela was hacked by another avatar who was called <laughs> bermuda is bay and okay she, so bermuda, is that a male or female that's a woman as well okay but she's pro-trump okay. and she's um Is, is little Michaela expressed any political views? Yes, little Michaela oh, is very Black much Lives yes, yeah, okay. Black Lives yeah. Matter. She's very much against gun violence. She's very much for policy change. Whereas uh, Bermuda's Bay is the yeah, sort of antithesis of that. Okay. And she hacked little Michaela's account for a few hours last night and I was I was there watching it, <laughs> panicking, going, "Oh my god, little Michaela's gone." Did you feel um, emotionally I did. I did and this was just from a week of following little Michaela. So okay. Salome. <laughs> I think that's that's what's really interesting here that the, the sort of narrative possibilities mm. of these constructed personas are, are, are kind of fascinating so now that you've built this community around this this persona and people are starting to care about her you could take her in all sorts of places she could yeah. be in danger she could yeah. be um, you know doing all ki- kinds of activities yeah. that people will go along with and be invested in yeah. and with that audience now that feels such a close connection to her there's lots of really really intriguing possibilities, possibilities. now. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> so for our final thing today, uh it couldn't be further more further removed from social media, but uh recently I went to uh the London Transport Museum depot, which is a separate thing. I don't know if people are aware of the London Transport Museum, which is in London obviously and is in Covent Garden. and is a great sort of museum mainly aimed at kids really i would say um but the depot is where london transport keeps its archive essentially of products uh buses old trains i mean a huge ephem- amount of ephemera ticket stubs uh ticket offices that are now disused lots of artworks that have been created for for the posters over the decades and it's a real i mean if you're into design it's a incredible treasure trove and 
it was one of those sort of places where, for me, there's been a few times when I've been living in London where you go to sort of certain places. One of them for me was the V&A cast rooms uh, where you go in, or the John Soane Museum is another one, where you sort of go in and you discover this place that feels like, how did this exist? And like you didn't hear about it because often they're not talked about as much as you would expect, really, and are full of sort of amazing treasures. And it feels like you've discovered it, which is Brilliant. And, uh, but I do feel conscious that maybe my interest in design perhaps makes the Transport Museum one uh, particularly special because it has things like the original block uh, to make the original fonts, you know, the original blocks that did those, which you sort of, you know, as a design fan is, is sort of treasure. But, uh, but Pat, you've been there, haven't you? Did you have the have. same thing? Well, Are you a geek too? <laughs> my son probably won't thank me for mentioning this now that he's 18 years old, but when he was little, we had season tickets to the Transport Museum. Oh, and we would literally go every other week. He was utterly obsessed by the tube, by anything to do with London Underground. So then the discovery that there was also this depot that was only open like twice a year. So you've got the kind of exclusivity of it. And as you were say- saying as well, there's this idea of it being this treasure trove. It's a really interesting place because it's quite nondescript. It's in this big grey hangar of a building. Yeah, you um, wouldn't... And Acton isn't necessarily... Well, I mean, you know... <laughs> Apologies <laughs> to our listeners in uh, West Ham. But it's not somewhere you... It's not a destination. Yeah, London so you've got this whole kind of drama of going there at the appointed time to this weird place... Um, and it, it is, as Eliza's saying, just chock full of the most amazing stuff, all these incredible old signs and trains you can sit on and models of the stations. And um, when we went as well, there were um, about four or five uh, model train clubs who had um, put <laughs> up their sets for the thing. day and were running the trains. And, um, you yeah. know, Dan's eyes were out on stalks. So he just thought this was the most amazing thing ever. Yeah, yeah. I, can, I mean, I did. I have a five-year-old and I didn't take him with me because the one sort of sadness with the depot is it isn't open all the time. They do have these open weekends, I think, uh, maybe three or four times a year when they let the public in. But I guess part of the, the, amaz- the amazement was being able to go there really as sort of one or two people in there. And you saw sort of the experts bringing old trains back to life, but mostly it, it was very quiet and quite spectacular but one thing it did make me sort of think is it's my sort of emotional connection I mean I'm obviously interested in design but I feel this quite emotional connection to London's London's signage and it's uh you know the roundel and these things actually sort of have quite a resonance that I'm surprised by how emotional it it can be without wanting to sound a bit odd and I was wondering Saloni you've lived here for for three years whether you as someone who you know didn't grow up with all of it, is does it have that sort of sense of resonance, or are you just like, yeah, it's just good, it's good, useful wayfinding? Well, yeah, I was going to dismiss the fascination with the museum itself as to being a boy thing. But yeah, I know. Sorry, then, I'm breaking the stereotypes <laughs> here. <laughs> no, my bad, because you seem really excited by it. It's got I, lovely stuff in. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think you have to be British and a Londoner, maybe, yeah. or having lived here for a while. Maybe if I leave London, I might feel a certain nostalgia about it when I come back. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know in the day-to-day and when I was actually living it, whether I ex- whether I understood or whether I processed this kind of nostalgia that people seem to have about it. The yeah. roundel's used quite a lot around the world, though, isn't it? Yes. So the ra- there's versions of the roundel used in transport systems around the world. That's defending it. In in Mumbai, it's used, isn't it? I think Mumbai is basically a copycat system. Uh, Like, we even have station names and stuff that kind of mimic that, and the red buses are the same. So there was definitely a kind of 
you know, you can see the colonial influence and in how this thing has moved around the world a little bit. Yeah. But um, not not quite as passionate. No, I mean, I, I, I sometimes am surprised by how much it's... Because <laughs> it, I've been a couple of times now and every time it's still a thrill. So, But I think it is that, partly it's that sort of secret treasure thing that you discover this thing that's existed in London and I never knew about it. Uh, but part of it's also just the love of a, a good piece of font design. <laughs> anyway, on that note, uh, I think we'll leave our podcast here for this time. Uh, all the stories we've talked about today are available on the Creative Review website at creativereview.co.uk, uh, where there'll be the video, a video of the Transport uh, Museum depot, which you can see, and the comedy articles from the magazine will also be on there too, of course, as well as little Michaela. But thank you for listening. Uh, check out our Instagram and Facebook too, which are both Creative Review. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.